Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. One of the things I love most about these interviews is the wide range of people I get to talk to. And today, we get to take a peek at a niche of our economy that I didn't even know existed before I got to know this week's guest. And that excites me to no end. My guest today is Elizabeth Schwann Rosenwald, a kind, generous, loyal, and fundamentally decent human which is one of the highest praises I know to give a person. She is also one of the smartest people I know, and the new chief program officer at an organization called Common Impact. To boil her role down probably way too far, her job is to connect corporate professionals with specific skills to nonprofits who may need a little help in that skill area. In her words, she's helping to create a triple win and you'll hear why that is both beautiful and true a little later in this episode. We also talk about the nature of the sacred, the best cream of mushroom soup ever made, and grief over the loss of simple physical affection during this pandemic. It's a loose and wide-ranging conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So normally, I save the picture conversation to the end. Um, those of you who have been listening a little bit know that every every guest I ask to send me a picture of something that is beautiful or true or beautiful and true. And then I ask them to talk about it. And my guest today, Elizabeth Schwann Rosenwald, is has opted to start with it. And I think that's delightful. So... Tell me a little bit about the picture. Thank you. Well, I am very pleased to be here. <laughs> yes, also I should have said, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm happy to say that. I'm very <laughs> pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm delighted to have you because um, you are somebody I I know thinks a lot about. Well, okay. Here's my question for you. A couple of the guests recent guests have made me start to think that most of us, even those of us who really do think a lot about things that are both beautiful and true and, and lean into those and live into them, have a, like an affinity for either beauty or truth. Do you think you have an affinity? I think that the combination is what works for me. Yeah. That for me, and this is partially just how my brain works, that the complexities that come together when something is beautiful and true is what I am most drawn to. And that on their own, I can appreciate the beautiful and I can be awed by the truth. But it's the combination of the two that's worth seeking. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that because I do. I have, this is the whole, the whole point of this. Um, but Although to answer think, your question oh, yes. about the podcast, about the picture. Oh, sure. Which yes. I didn't get to. No, I know. Because I because I realized I hadn't actually introduced you. <laughs> so, dear listeners, what you have to understand right now is that this is, because of the pandemic, this is the very first guest that I have ever interviewed in person. Um, and that is very exciting, but also... <laughs> Oddly, it's a little scary to talk about things that are this kind of vulnerable and personal with somebody who is holding a microphone and, you know, eight feet away from you. These are not easy conversations. They're not. And I particularly don't think they're easy right now, given that we are so very isolated. And as a result, we have 
two ways we can go. One is to seek out and find all that is beautiful and true in our lives at this moment. And the other is to cease to notice it because it's too painful. Yes. Whatever this was, this project was going to be should have happened right as the pandemic started. Um, so the first, the first phase of this project was I wanted to know, I wanted to know more about people's experiences of beauty and truth and their definitions of it. And so I sent a whole bunch of really big questions, one question at a time to a handful of people that I thought might have some insight. And the last question was due the first Monday that I stayed home from work. It was March 3rd. That Monday was March 2nd. And I know that because I know exactly where I was on March 2nd. Okay. Which was in Galway, Ireland, walking around an island because it was my 40th birthday. And by the universe knowing that this is what I needed, somehow my twin sister and I, who always take a trip every five years, allowed us to go. And so on that day, on March 2nd, the first day that you were home in your apartment, I was walking around an island where in the course of the walk, there was wind so hard it blew us over almost. Mm. There was hail. There was brilliant sunshine. There was rain. And it would all just come in and move out. And then there was the best meal I had in Ireland after the walk in a little tiny bar that should not have served good food, but it was amazing. The best cream of mushroom soup I've had in my life. Cream of mushroom? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I don't normally think of cream of mushroom as being a particularly amazing soup. If it's made right. Apparently so. Without much cream and with a very heavy mushroom stock. And that meal is a fantastic example of beautiful and true. Mm -hmm. We were so hungry. Of course. And so tired. And it could have been an ordinary meal, but it was so good. And everything was so crisp and clear and the moment. And it was a day that I was given by a universe. And that was my 40th birthday. That day. That day. So it sounds like part of the setup for the meal being so extraordinary was also this this weird weather pattern that was happening that was blowing everything, almost everything possible, but a hurricane or a tornado at you. Nothing about that day was ordinary. So many people... So many people on that the, I have these conversations with end up talking about nature as part of um, part of their experience of beautiful and true. And you were, you were saying that nothing about this day was ordinary. And there's definitely there's definitely a, comp, a, a, a kind of beautiful and true moment that seizes you. Mm-hmm. And it is so potent and so profound that it demands your attention. Yes. Uh, you, you can't not pay attention to it. That has become one of the focal points of this podcast, actually, is the idea of attention and the power of attention to, to draw us to things that are beautiful and true. Um, but I, it seems to me that there are two, two kinds of beautiful and true moments or, or expressions or... Um, I don't have the word for this yet. I'm going to go with moments. The kind like you're talking about that sees your attention and the kind that you give your attention to and then suddenly they become beautiful and true. And I think this walk was both of those because I was taking it with my sister. Mm-hmm. And your twin sister. My twin sister, yes. And she and I, as I've mentioned, take these trips every five years And our specifications for these trips are very specific. 
And one of the things that must be the case is we must have the ability to do things that involve walking and talking. Mm -hmm. Because she, I live in the Chicagoland area and she lives outside of Boston. So we spend much of our relationship on a phone. And it takes a lot of work to shift from a phone relationship to an in-person relationship. And so in order to replicate the norm of our relationship, we can't just sit down on a beach and talk to each other. That would feel, I can only imagine that would feel really awkward and uncomfortable. Yes. Also, she hates beaches, so that won't work. Well, okay. But But you couldn't dangle your legs off the cliffs of Moore and just sit and talk. No, we had to try and hike all of it. Oh, I wish we'd had more time. We would have actually hiked all of it. Oh, that sounds lovely. I haven't traveled. It's been a while since I've really traveled out of the country. I miss it. I love it. So now we're going to circle back to the first question that I asked you, which is tell me about the picture that you sent me. I spent a lot of time thinking about what picture to send you. I have my two munchkins, my two kids. They are eight and four. And often when someone asks me about something that is both beautiful and true, that speaks to me, I show a picture of my kids. Often my son sleeping or my daughter climbing a tree, both of which are very normal things in my house. But I didn't want to share their pictures because this is my beautiful and true. And as much as they are my kiddos and I take lots of pictures of them, those pictures are of them and then they're beautiful and true. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So the picture I sent you, now that I've explained why I didn't send you any other picture. <laughs> well, okay, but I, this is this is fascinating because I, what I know of you, they are part of your beautiful and true. Absolutely. But this is a public podcast and I'm not willing to share them as part of my beautiful and true because part of that is mine and mine alone in the sense of alone being family and community. Mm-hmm. Some things are not meant for public consumption. So this picture. Yes, the picture you did send. Is of a Christmas tree ornament. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of Christmas trees. Well, and of Christmas in general. And I saw this ornament and I fell head over heels in love with it. Because it is, it, it should be noted, listeners, that I am Jewish. That matters <laughs> in this whole story, I promise. It is a picture of baby Jesus in the manger. One of those adorable little, he's kicking his arms up and uh, laying in a bed of straw. Very like Catholic creche manger Mm -hmm. scene. Yep. Mm -hmm. And there is a person kneeling by his creche. And who is this person? Santa Claus. And I love this. I love this because... I grew up in a house where my father was Jewish, is Jewish, my mother is a Quaker. So religion is all messy and mucky and all of that. So when I look for my beliefs, I boil them down to what is the thing we are supposed to love and hold true and beautiful here? And in the case of Christmas, it is the celebration of birth. Mm-hmm. And that moment, that moment of birth and of Santa Claus as the magic of Christmas put together and of the acknowledgement that Santa would kneel before baby Jesus because it's about children and childhood and innocence. It all spoke to all the right parts of Christmas for me. So when you, when you look at this, when you look at this ornament, Um, is there anything in it that speaks to the sacred? Well, birth is sacred. Birth is messy and painful and gross and... Did I say painful? (laughs) You did. Okay, let me say it again. (laughs) But it's also sacred because there's a new life that comes from it. Mm -hmm or that comes into the world. 
And magic and sacred and childhood and joy, those are all the things that are wrapped up in Santa Claus. So to add Santa Claus with baby Jesus just brings it all together in a messy, nonsensical, gorgeously beautiful, illogically true moment. One of the things that's interesting to me is that for as often as people bring up nature on this podcast, very often God and the sacred come up, whatever that means to people. I have had people who try very hard not to look at their religion or spirituality and they still bring it up. Um, Well, I think when you get down to the essence of what is beautiful and true, you're talking about something pure. Something that is pure often has to be sacred to some degree because it's so rare. I hear you. I'm not sure I agree with myself. I'm not sure I agree with you either. As I said it, I felt myself thinking, I don't think I like this. Well, and and I wonder, this is the reaction that I was having because now we're talking, we, we, we brought up religion and things that are pure. And I, I, I get what you're saying, but also in religion, there are so many religions, especially when you start getting the conservative versions of them, you know, you know oh, this is so fun. I get to see somebody's reaction. <laughs> So Elizabeth is smiling and nodding and like is, is nodding as if, yes, I would like to take all of this back that I just said. Um, but you're right. I think conservative religions or con- a conservative religious expression or a conservative expression of a religion um, values purity because it is rare and associates purity with sacredness. Every time you say purity, I wince. I know. Which is why I, I didn't actually use the word purity. No, you I said pure. very intentionally stayed away from it. But I'm, I'm erasing everything. No, <laughs> no, you don't have to cut any of this, but I'm erasing everything. I'm not going to cut this because I think this is an interesting part of the conversation. I think, um, it's, I think the word I wanted is something closer to concentrated. Ooh. So I was trying to search, search through words in my brain when you were talking about purity and religion. And the closest I came was thinking about beautiful and true in comparison to orange concentrate versus oranges. Everyday life (laughs) is oranges. Beautiful and true moments are orange concentrate. They're the essence. Okay. (laughs) The reason I'm laughing is because... I'm not uh, willing to write a thesis on this. The reason I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> a little bit is because I think of orange juice from concentrate as being like kind of, I mean, it's okay, but really good orange juice. Now, I know what you're saying is oranges versus orange concentrate. Right. And if you're me, or in this particular case, if you're my children, <laughs> you eat the orange concentrate out of a can when it's frozen. Oh, I see. Like a like a slushy. Yes. I got you. So it's just pure orange. Right. Okay. It's not, it's not watered down. You're not making down. orange juice. You're not mm-hmm. making watered down orange juice. It is the pure orange. Which. Pure. Pure. You Thank you. <laughs> I make these orange chocolate chip muffins. Okay. I bake with my kids. I make these muffins. And they're orange chocolate chip muffins. And. The person who wrote the recipe wrote it one way. And over time, my sister and I have adapted it so that it's essentially the rind of two separate oranges. Plus, rather than use just orange juice, we use orange concentrate. We've essentially made it as orangey as possible. So it's basically orange with a little muffin. And some chocolate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But my kids love to help me make these muffins because they get to eat the orange concentrate and eat the chocolate chips. But every time I make them, and I have to actually buy more orange concentrate than one would think, because they eat it like it's ice cream. Sure. I've just never thought to do that. I, I can't say I ever thought to do it, but... I mean, it's kind of brilliant. It's exactly like getting one of those kind of orange pop-up, you know, the orange pop-up sickles? I do. My children have never eaten one. <laughs> Okay. So. And they never will. 
I mean, I'm sure they will at some point, but I won't feed them one. Oh, the joy of getting really nasty ice cream out of the one of the ice cream vendors that that bike. They're not really bicycles, but they have the little. They're on the bikes, and they they pop open the the frozen section, and you pull. They pull out a really gross ice cream bar that is wildly overpriced, and it's perfection. This is why I pay my children to do various chores and things around the house, because if they would like to do that, I'm all for it. <laughs> and they can pay for it. Maybe not the four-year-old quite yet, who has trouble telling the difference between quarters and pennies. Well, how often does one see change these days anyway? That's something interesting. This is not on the subject of beautiful and true, but apparently the pandemic has caused a shortage in change. Yes. Because nobody's using cash. I've seen all of the signs. There's a national coin shortage. Right, because it's all in everybody's pocketbooks and in their piggy banks and in their jugs that they, wherever you keep spare change, well, it's not circulating. The only place that I use cash, and now I'm going to bring us back to the most beautiful and true moment I have in my week ordinarily. Oh. The only place I use cash these days is my farmer's market. Mm. Now, Jen has heard me talk before about this farmer's market. I have. I have a deep love affair with this farmer's market. I've had this since my daughter was born. I attend every Saturday without fail, rain, shine, whatever. It has never snowed, but I'm sure it could. Get into October, yeah. Yeah. Good. This year's market's a little different. We have to wait in line. Lots of lines. It's only one direction. You have to walk through the entire horseshoe shape. But I feel safer at this farmer's market than I do at any grocery store I've been to. It's outdoors. It's outdoors. Everyone is so respectful and so polite and so graciously happy that this small bit of normalcy is in our lives. And they're, everyone's masked and they're all being careful. And rather than just hand whoever's serving you the fruit or vegetables, you have to go down to a certain place at the different tables and pay different places. But everyone just waits, waits their turn, takes a deep breath, and accepts that things are different, and yet we can still get this gorgeous bounty of food. So my Saturday mornings are always beautiful and true. Normalcy is so prized right now. Actually, I think it's a combination of things that, things that give us a bit of a sense of normalcy, but put in relief against this pandemic and against the fact that everybody's wearing masks and it it heightens the value of the normalcy. Mm -hmm. I think I mean, that's how I felt the first time I walked into a Starbucks. Mm. And I want to be clear that I know exactly how privileged the statement is about to be. The first time I walked into a Starbucks and ordered my ridiculous latte... I was profoundly grateful for the normalcy of ordering my coffee drink, receiving it, and walking out of the store. Mm -hmm. Because during the pandemic, I think there was twice that I drove to the closest drive through Starbucks. But most of the time, I made my coffee at home. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. I'm trying to think if I can remember a moment, the first moment of normalcy for me, where I felt like I could take a little bit of a breath. Um, I think those were the hikes that I was taking. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was going on a hike almost every week, almost every weekend. Um, and the first couple of times, I was really adamant about wearing a mask the whole time. And then as I got a little more comfortable, I was like, okay, maybe I'll just put the mask on when I'm passing people. And that felt really good and really safe. But this was, it felt a little bit normal to be moving, to be outside, 
for a little bit of time, I didn't really have to think and worry about, am, am I infecting somebody? Is somebody infecting me? That was my little bit of normalcy for me. Having taken one of those hikes with you, I found that one of the moments of normalcy that came from it was saying hello to people. Mm, yes, passing by and... And just saying, hello, hope you're having a nice day. Oh, thank you for moving to the side. Mm -hmm. Just... So a lot of these trails are also used by mountain bikers. And everybody on that trail was so gracious. They'd come by and, and just say gently, not screaming like they do on Lakeshore Drive or on the lakefront path, uh, just gently, I'm going to come up on your left and there are going to be three of us. I hope you're having a great day. It's like, what? <laughs> Thank you. And that moment of human decency and connection is something that we were isolated from for so long. Very early in the pandemic, at least in the United States, we were getting these videos of from Italy where people were singing Italian folk songs together off their balconies. Um, I saw videos from Italy. I saw videos from Spain. I, and occasionally they would get together and, all, and clank their pots and pans and just to say, we're here, we're doing this together. And I know there, are a couple, there were a couple of places in the United States that did something a little bit like that. Um, I believe in New York, there was a bit of that. And very specifically in the Silver Lake neighborhood of LA, every night for months, and I know this because a friend of mine would post videos, every night at 8 p.m. they would howl and hoot and clang things. But that wasn't normal. I remember seeing those videos from New York. And the thing that struck me was, yes, you could hear the noise and the shouting and the the voices coming together. But you could also see that there was no one in Times Square. No, you're right. There was nothing normal about it. I was, um, I think I was thinking about the, the connection. And it's not a normal kind of connection. But Humans was, are not meant to be alone. No, not most of us. Which is why, if we're stuck in our, in our houses for months on end we start to go a little batty and we absolutely need to howl and bang pots and pans just to say to our neighbors hey we're here actually i heard that this is why the bird song at dawn is so strong that makes perfect sense the birds are actually literally saying to the others in the neighborhood hey i'm still here are you still here did you make it through the night i made it through the night I am recently divorced, and during the pandemic, half the time my kids would be with me and half the time they'd be with my ex. And the difference between the noise of normalcy when the kids were in the house, I mean, nothing about having my kids in the house full time was normal. <laughs> no, I imagine not. Uh, not in the slightest. But the silence that came when they weren't there was so very noticeable. Mm -hmm. And the lack of human touch and connection, even though I was Zooming and FaceTiming with the best of them, but it was not the same. It's not the same. And when they would return to me, that immediate physicality of connection was so important. So you're hitting now on one of the things that I learned for myself one of two things I learned early on that is beautiful and true for me, which is affection expressed physically. Mm. Not love, not romance. Those are all, those are, those are great, but just really simple, simple, deep, profound affection, but expressed physically. Mm -hmm. And I had really connected with that for all of three months when the pandemic hit. And then I didn't touch anybody for, it was at least a full month, if not two months. Now, I know people who live by themselves and are to pretty, pretty isolated who, haven't, who hadn't touched anybody, anybody at all for three, four months. And I have a friend who was in that situation. And I figured out a way to hug people that feels really safe. 
because I needed it for myself. And of course, I think most of us do. Um, it's both in masks, you know, six, seven, eight feet apart. Deep breath in, hold your breath, turn your head to the side, rush in, hug as hard as you can for a few seconds, push back and exhale. So we did that and pushed back and I was laughing ha, 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 ha. and I turn around and her shoulders are shaking and she is sobbing because that was the first time she'd been touched in three months. Yeah. And emotion expressed physically. And I'm not talking here romantically in any way, but just the ability to hug the people you love. I remember the first time I hugged my best friend after the pandemic. And we we talked about her coming over and how we felt about it and comfort. But we waited until we were comfortable knowing that there was no way she was going to come to my front porch and not hug me. And I was not going to hug her. Mm-hmm. So we had to wait until we were comfortable being like, no, I, I, I have to, to touch you. It's not, this is nothing sexual. This is just, you are this person and I need to show you how much I love you by putting my arms around you. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and it's true. And in some ways, ooh, this is going to be fun. It's very primal in its, that is what after all children crave. Mm-hmm. And here we go back to baby Jesus and the Santa Claus. Yay. I did it. I tied it all together. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm unduly High pleased. <laughs> here you go, Jen. Nice little neat bow. Thank you. Wow. I think that Mike's picked that up. There was just a glorious moment of thunder. And I'm going to take that, that the universe agreed with me. <laughs> That there is something primal and necessary with touching the ones we love. There are very few people who would disagree with that. Perhaps, but I'm going to... You're going to take it as... I'm going to thank the universe for <laughs> the universe's... That was a stamp of approval. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I have to say that as I really embraced the idea of affection expressed physically, it started to change my relationships. How so? They became more open. Um, the, the people that I love in my life, friends, were surprised at first. And they're like, oh, oh um, okay. Because they're not used to that from me. I don't, think that, I don't think that I've ever been a cold person or like anti-hug, but I was... I was suddenly different because I was focusing on this and they Mm. could see it in my body and they could feel it in the way I was hugging and the way I was more easily touching them, you know, like a little hand on the arm, a little, and it was just different. And they were a little taken aback at first and then their eyes started to light up and everything got softer. Mm -hmm. All my relationships got just a little bit softer, a little bit, I don't know that deeper is the right word. More open somehow. Um, I was really excited to be exploring this and I felt like it was starting to change me. And then. And then. Global pandemic. Global pandemic. I will say, I remember having a conversation with my sister where we talked about whether or not we hug our friends. Mm -hmm. When I see my friends we meet for drinks or dinner. This is pre-pandemic, obviously. But I always would hug them hello. We'd hug goodbye. Just natural, low-key, but like, hello, you. I love you. I'm glad to see you. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no. No, I, didn't, I never do that. Mm-hmm. And I realize that it spills over into my work life. Like when I see colleagues that I work with that are not in my city – which I have a lot of, I will hug them and just be like, hey, it's good to see you. Mm-hmm. I recognize that that might make someone uncomfortable. And I recognize the privilege in my being able to do it without 
worrying about someone being made uncomfortable. If I was a black man and I hugged all of my coworkers, I'd have to worry a little bit more. I'm a white woman. I don't. Mm-hmm. Actually, as a white woman, you might, we're both white women. We might be some of the only people in this country who would get to do that without, I mean, it, it might cause a little discomfort, but not because of who we are. Right. If it causes discomfort, it's because somebody's uncomfortable being hugged in this situation. Yes. Not because of who we are. Yes. I had this thought as I was thinking about hugging friends and that one I know I know that they want that and if they don't I understand that and but when I think about hugging more generally I suddenly had this moment of realization that that act itself is one of privilege mm-hmm. that the ability to show physical affection in a low-key non-threatening way by hugging someone is a gift only given a, a right a privilege to primarily middle-aged white women. Mm-hmm. Well, now I have to go sit and think about that. Almost immediately as we're talking about this, I started thinking about Joe Biden. Yes. Because he is somebody who I think pretty clearly is pretty well known that he feels great affection for people and expresses it physically. Yes. Um, occasionally making people uncomfortable by it. Yes. Occasionally, possibly crossing the line. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly not knowing exactly where the line is. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to get into whether or not some of the allegations against him are true or false, but it is difficult. Our culture makes it difficult for most people to, to express affection physically. Unless, unless you're in a really close friend situation. Right. That's a different. That's a different. But just in, in every day, I, you're an acquaintance of mine or, yeah, we don't do it. Because it's fraught. It sure can be. And that's sad. But we can't change it by hugging more people. No, I'm not suggesting we can. Oh, I don't think you are. I'm just, the only way we can change, the only way we can make a shift in how we think about affection physically is to change power dynamics between races and genders. And that's, I mean, a goal, but no small one. No, no. I would also like $5 million and a pony. Just one pony? Actually, I don't really like horses that much, so <laughs> I will I will take zero ponies, but I'll take the five million dollars, please. Um, when I was a kid, actually, even now, I will occasionally play the "What would I do if I had five million dollars?" game. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's a nice way to put yourself to sleep if you're really wrought up and you want to like calm yourself down. Oh wow, no, not for me. But we'll talk about that in a second. You tell me about. I want to hear about. What uh, young Elizabeth d- does with $5 million. Well, so the reason why I find this game a fun one, but also a relaxing one, is because I think you told me this, that money can buy happiness. It's been proven, that, you know, you told me, you tell me the fact again. Okay, so there have been... At least one study has suggested that money can buy happiness up to a household income of $75,000 a year in the United States. Um, after that, you will you, your happiness level does not increase with your income. And the reason for this is because $75,000 as a household income for most Americans is enough that you don't have to worry much. You don't have to worry... You don't have to worry as much if somebody gets sick. You don't have to worry as much if somebody gets laid off. Uh, there is a financial safety net that removes some of the stresses that contribute to anxiety and lack of happiness. I take issue with the 75000 I think it probably should actually be higher. But Well, it might be now. Uh, but 
the point there is, okay, so if I have this $5 million, I can remove all of the stressors. Mm-hmm. And then I can focus on the stuff that I want to focus on. So I can make certain that my children have their entire college education this is saved. No, this is no longer young Elizabeth. Oh, no, 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 no. This is, that, <laughs> this, this is, I mean, when I was young, I'm sure what I wanted, I, I actually don't remember. But like, I, I play this game now when I want to just let go of worries. So my children's education is paid for. The house is paid off. My sister is able to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Her child's education is paid for. Like, these are not fun, I want to take a trip around the world type of things. I mean, there's a couple of things I might throw in there. But the truth is, most of the things I would throw in there are a couple of thousand dollars. So astronomical to some, but nowhere near five million. Right. And this is, I play this game too. Literally five million dollars. I figured out once that that was what I needed to be able to do everything I wanted to do and then, this is terrible, but then also live off the interest. Yeah. If it was invested well. I think that's smart. I, I buy my little bit of land someplace. I put a little house on it. Uh, I pay off my brother's house. I pay off my student loans. I take a nice trip and then I live off the interest for the rest of my life, barring financial disaster. I mean, in my case, I would still work because uh, I have been told that my the idea of my retiring is unacceptable. To you or to other people? To other people, but also that like I would be miserable. So I have now identified three post-career retirement careers. Okay. I, wanna, I would like to hear about these because I think... I think they're going to be beautiful and true, and it's also going to tie into something else that I know. So tell me about your three post-retirement careers. Okay. So number one is I would like to be a real estate agent. Ooh. I think, I mean, I love knowing things. Mm-hmm. I like, actually love looking at houses and thinking about all the potential. And real estate, being a real estate agent is a lot of just gaming. True. And playing with numbers and looking at options. So I would love to do that. And reading people. Yes. Mm-hmm. And knowing and knowing what they're really looking for. Well, these are all things about reading people because that's what I do professionally. We're going to get to that in a second. Thing number two is I would like to be a personal shopper. Also reading people. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um my friends call me when they're like, I have to have a wedding for this, an outfit for this wedding I'm officiating and help. I'm good at it. It's fun. I love doing it. It's all about like finding the exact right thing for the exact right moment. It's lovely. Thing three. Career three. Career three. Yes. <laughs> and this one I'm a little little more hesitant on, but there are things about it that I would like is I would like to be a massage therapist. Ooh. Okay. So those are my three post-retirement careers. So the only one you didn't talk about was the massage therapist. Like the others you kind of explained. So is this one something that... The massage therapist is one... That's more like, I like the idea of massage as a way to reduce anxiety. Mm-hmm. I struggle with anxiety. It's very present in my life. And I've seen how massage can help alleviate it. And so I have thought about that. But it's less tangible than the other two. I'm sorry, I, I got stuck a minute because it is actually more tangible in a certain sense because you're actually laying hands on somebody. So it's literally <laughs> tangible. <laughs> okay, nerd alert. <laughs> I was about to call you a dork, so that's fine. I am. I am a tremendous dork. And I'm, as I'm sure my listeners are figuring out. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to segue a little bit because you have just accepted a new job. Yes, I have. And you were doing the interview on a Sunday afternoon, pushing into evening, and you start this new job when? 
tomorrow morning. Oh, yay. Uh, I knew that. Um, do you want, would you like to talk about it at all? Sure. So I will be starting at an organization called Common Impact. I will be their chief program officer. Common Impact is an organization that works with companies to help them leverage the talent of their employees to build infrastructure and capacity for the nonprofit sector. So you're gonna break the, you have to break that down I'm, for us. I'm gonna break it down. So think about the capacity needs of a nonprofit. What does that mean? Capacity needs. The things that will allow them to grow and expand and do their work well. Marketing, mm -hmm. HR, technology. Mm -hmm. These are all fairly basic parts of a business that nonprofits often lack because they focused first on serving the communities that they serve. And the mission. And the mission. Right. And second, on building the infrastructure. Yes. But a business, especially if you're talking like a corporation. Yep. Not just like a, a five-person, very no. small business. You're talking about corporations. I'm talking about corporations. Have the structures in place. And often Fortune 5 and 100 companies. Mm -hmm. They have entire departments of people whose job it is to work on HR. I remember the first time I was in conversations with a company and meeting with their HR department. And I just had this like light bulb moment of being like, your job is to work on developing the talent in your employees. That's the entirety of, their, of your job. And there's like 20 of you. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have friends who work for a large consulting company mm -hmm. and they're just like admin support because they're in the arts and this is kind of their day job, but the company still values them and values their professional development. And they have meetings at least quarterly with a personal, a professional development coach to say, what, what do you want to do in the organization? What would you like to learn next? I've I, never had, I've never had that myself and it sounds amazing, but this is what you're talking about. Yes. At another time, I should tell you about an amazing pro bono project that was done with executive assistants. Um, but that's a whole other. Uh, uh, that's not fair. <laughs> I don't know that we have time for it. We may not. But uh, oftentimes, pro bono projects or skilled-based volunteering is done in areas that I've just mentioned. HR, marketing, IT, a technology. So skills-based volunteering is when... Uh and tell me if I get this wrong. It's when people in their roles in a corporation use those skills that they're using in their day-to-day -day jobs to then help a not-for-profit that may not have somebody who has those skills. I think the best way to look at skill-based volunteering or the best way to describe it is to say if someone is providing a service and they could charge for it and they're not. Mm. So what that means is skill-based volunteering is not someone who does graphic design saying that they would love to learn how to build a website and building a nonprofit a website. They might know how to design a website, but they don't know how to build one. Right, but skills-based volunteering would be that same graphic designer offering to design a poster for them exactly or a postcard or or even a website but not build the website but design it right okay yeah got it so common impact works with companies all across the u.s and also and this is the part of the role that i am really excited about thinks about the pro bono skilled based volunteering movement when i started doing this work in 2009 the majority of people would respond to pro bono with a, isn't that what lawyers do? Right. I mean, that's what I think right away. And now almost every Fortune 500 company has a skill-based volunteering program hmm. because it has been proven that skill-based volunteering is the single best way to develop employees while also building goodwill and whether that's community goodwill or employee goodwill. So enabling the individual to feel pride in their work, in the company, 
and in the community. It's a triple win. I completely believe that uh, because as I'm thinking about my own role as you know, a, a marketer for this small company, when I think about marketing for other things like the, the, the opera company that I'm on the board for, the board of, every time that I do something or think about things for them, I'm learning and bringing it back to my professional role. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is development for my professional life as part of, I'm saying this yes. incredibly badly, but. No, no, you're saying it actually exactly right because you're about to allow me to say, and what Common Impact does is we are essentially the bridge between you as a professional and the nonprofit because you can have a lot of professionals that want to help but don't know how or don't where to begin how, or don't know how to stop or nonprofits don't know how to say no or nonprofits don't even know what it is they want. One of my favorite how to explain what pro bono can do stories is the story of a, a nonprofit that met with a pro bono team. So as part of a, what we would call discovery process, so the research phase, mm-hmm. the nonprofit shared that the challenge they were having is they were having a fundraising challenge. They would get these grants and that every two years or, or so, they would have a lot of trouble getting renewals and they'd have to start the process over again and that they needed to find a way to better talk about what they were doing so that they didn't have to start from scratch over right, and over again. anybody who's written a grant knows that it's that is just hard. Right. So... The pro bono volunteers, the skilled-based volunteers, looked into what was going on to try and figure out how they could help. You know, could they talk about the story better? Could they tell the sort of how the nonprofit was doing the work or how what the long-term impact would be? And were these people who were like communications and marketing in their professional life? The individuals that were actually doing this discovery were likely a mix of very senior-level communications, marketing, and maybe strategy. Sure, yeah. So they were... At this moment, they weren't delivering anything. They were really just trying to sort of look and see if they could figure out the problem, and then they would bring in the people who could actually deliver the thing. Gotcha. And what they discovered was that this organization did not have a fundraising problem because the reason the grants were not being renewed is that about every two years, their development staff would leave. So what they actually had was an HR problem with employee retention. They had a turnover problem. Right, employee retention, yeah. And so then they needed to figure out how to retain their employees and how to keep them engaged and excited. There's a whole HR department that can do that. Yes. But that's not a fundraising problem. It just looks like one. It's an HR problem. The fundraising problem is the symptom. Right. So that's what I love about Pro Bono, which is when you start to dig into it, and start to look at how can you really help, you uncover ways in which you can connect corporate professionals and nonprofit executives that they never would have thought about originally. I have dozens of examples and ideas, things that haven't even been done yet. I'll give you one more. So this one is close to home for you. So, Nonprofits don't have market research. They don't use it. They don't know how to use it. They don't really know what to do with it. A couple of the really big ones do. The really, we've actually been doing some research into this. And right. the really big ones will have their own research staff. Yep. But they have to be pretty big. And if they're that big and they have their own research staff, they're likely not being hit in a COVID-19 will-we-go-under situation. No, they've got reserves. Right. Let's hope. But for the smaller ones, for the five and $10 million organizations, this is a moment in time where they desperately need to know where can their services be best utilized? Mm-hmm. How should they expand? What are the ways in which they can generate the most revenue for their services? Where should they stop delivering programming? Where should they go deep in delivering programming? What's the landscape? And also, and this is something that we've been learning recently, how to navigate a a newly on fire social justice movement. Yes. 
although I'm a little wary of suggesting that nonprofits who have always been at the center of that type of work need to research it, but I think that you are right that they need to wrap it into they may not what they're thinking. They may not need to research the, the social justice movement itself, but but for many of them, it's a pivot. It's a, they're pivoting more strongly, or they're they're starting to think to rethink uh, a narrow mission into a larger a, a larger social justice program. We and, can only hope. Yes, and that they may need a little help with. Yes, in terms of research, how will that go over at their donors? What kind of messaging and what kind of programs should they go into that? would support that effort. Yep. None of that is capacity that nonprofits have, particularly in the midst of a COVID-19 world. And certainly not the medium and smaller ones. So if we could, we being Common Impact, if we could design a template, and by we and Common Impact, I mean our corporate partners, if we could design a template that allowed nonprofits to put out a survey into the field and understand what it was looking for in terms of responses that would help them build out their programs. Ding. That's what pro bono and skills-based volunteering can do. Mm-hmm. No, it's very exciting. And like you said, a triple win. How often do you get that? Probably more often than we think. More often than we think. If we're thinking crea- creatively. And if we're not thinking in terms of um, making everything a zero-sum game. I work in gray. And that means I get to see a lot of triple wins because I get to acknowledge that things are not black and white. And I just mixed my metaphors to... All to hell. (laughs) That's where I was going. (laughs) To heaven and hell and back again. Um, I mean... Part of me wants to ask directly, what about this is beautiful and true? But I think you've actually answered it. The, the idea that, that professionals and executives and corporations can actually take their, their knowledge and their, their professional capacity and turn it into something that mission-based organizations can really use. They can help them grow and serve their people better. And, and what about that is not beautiful and true? I think I will add two things to that. Perfect. Uh, The first is, and the leaders and managers of the nonprofits can equally provide learnings and experiences and knowledge to the corporate professional. Oh, of course. But that's the beauty in it, is that it's a shared experience. It's a two-way street. Exactly. I wonder how many how many of the the, peop- the people in corporations who end up working with not-for-profits go back thinking more strongly about, well, what is the mission of this company? And it's not, it's not going to be the same kind of service-based that a, non- a non-profit has, but companies do have missions. Oh, yeah. Even beyond a mission statement, they have actual, this is what we want to do in the world, and we want to do this kind of good in the world and for our employees and for our shareholders and yep there's always a mission yep and so so first thing i add is it's a two-way street Mm -hmm. which makes it beautiful and true because otherwise it's pejorative which is neither beautiful nor true condescending right Mm -hmm. but um it it being a two-way street makes it that and the thing that maybe i think we're vaguely ending on my time clock in my head is going off uh is it's beautiful and true for me because this is how my mind works, is putting together these puzzle pieces and figuring out how to create, you can tell I'm having fun because my metaphors are all over the place. (laughs) So I'm pulling out puzzle pieces to create a roadmap, um, which makes no sense. (laughs) Unless it's a puzzle of a road Oh God. But this is how my brain works. And so when I get to put my brain to work to do this so that others can bring their talents and bring their knowledge and bring their needs, I have given back. I have helped make the world just a little bit better. And I've been working in the nonprofit sector my entire career. So I choose to work in this sector 
because I want to make things just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that for me is fundamentally beautiful and true. I want to thank Elizabeth for taking the time out of her exceptionally busy week to talk with me. Those of you who are parents already know what a stressful time this particular back-to-school season is. And then add in starting a new job and oof. I think I may have caught her at exactly the right moment, and I'm so grateful. If you really found yourself intrigued by the last part of our conversation about skills-based volunteering and corporate pro bono work, I really encourage you to visit the Common Impact Organization website. You'll learn a little bit about what they do and a little bit about the work that Elizabeth is doing in the world. Go to commonimpact.org. That's C-O-M-M-O-N-I-M-P-A-C-T dot org. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project. And if you really like what you hear, tell a friend about us. It is always my hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week.